Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are together for our Friday afternoon Arab Shabbat class with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, uh, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida, and the spiritual guide for the Hemisphere program. Today, Rabbi Akiva will be delivering his weekly Parsha Shir sponsored by the Henry and Lisa Manusheri Parsha Shir uh, support, and he will be discussing Parsha's Kisisa. The topics will be forgiveness is a process. He will also discuss glimpses of unimaginable greatness. The month of Adar, one, is sponsored by Alex and Danielle Galski and family in memory of beloved grandparents, Abraham, Bela, Guillermo, and Dora, and also in loving memory of Uncle Alberto Galski. There will be a recording posted after the share for those who want to listen or share with their friends. And uh, without any further ado, Rabbi Akiva's wife. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Shabbos. So nice to be with everybody. <clears throat> Look forward to everybody's uh, thoughts and comments at the end. Today, in our Parsha discussion, Aaron Yehuda mentioned uh, that we're going to talk about forgiveness as a process and glimpses of unimaginable greatness, the way I want to go about that is going to require a little bit of detailed background in terms of the happenings of Mount Sinai and the Golden Calf, plus the aftermath of the Golden Calf. So it's important to understand <clears throat> what happened when, and the opinion that we are going to be following today in the verses is that of Rashi, and there are going to be two extremely difficult questions that we're going to try to resolve. And that hopefully will give us really big insight into the fact that forgiveness is a process, as well as these glimpses of incredible greatness. So right off the bat, we should mention that Hashem speaks the Ten Commandments on what we call the holiday of Shavuos, which is in the third month of the Jewish calendar in the month of Sivan. And then 40 days later, Moshe is coming down with the two stone tablets that have carved into them the words of the Ten Commandments on the 17th of Tammuz. Now, before Moshe leaves the mountain, Hashem tells Moshe on the 17th of Tammuz, go down, your people have caused destruction, they have made for them a molten golden image and they are prostrating and bowing and declaring that this is the God of the Jewish people. Go down now. Now, Hashem also had told Moshe that I want to destroy these people. Leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them. But before Moshe ever goes down, and this is a sentence that we read every fast day. We're going to read it again in, on the... Uh, Tani Sester, which is coming up in just about, you know, a few weeks. Before Moshe ever goes down, Moshe davens and he says, remember the covenant that you promised, the swear that you made to Avram, to Yitzchak, Yisrael, your servants, you swore to them and you, I'm going to increase their children and therefore don't destroy this people, to which the Torah says, Vayinachem Hashem, Hashem reconsidered, over the evil 
what he did to his people. So again, we have to keep in mind, the giving of the Ten Commandments, meaning speaking the Ten Commandments, happens on the sixth or the seventh day of Sivan. Forty days later, Moshe is on top of the mountain. He's coming down with the tablets. God's threatening to destroy the Jewish people because the people are acting out with the golden calf. Before Moshe ever goes down, he prays and Hashem says, seemingly, at, at least according to the Torah, Hashem acquiesces and he agrees not to destroy the people. Then Moshe goes down, following our timeline, on the 17th of Tammuz, and he smashes the tablets. On the 18th of Tammuz, what happens is, is that Moshe grinds up the golden calf, gives it to the people to drink. Various people who sinned with the golden calf die in a plague. Other people who sinned with the golden calf are killed by the tribe of Levi. That's the 18th of Tammuz. On the 19th of Tammuz, Moshe turns to the people and says, listen, i got to go back up to the mountain. I have to see if I can atone for you. Moshe goes up to the mountain on the 19th of Tammuz. He turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, listen, you got to forgive these people. And if you don't forgive them, erase me from the book that you wrote. That's happening on the 19th of Tammuz. Now, Rashi explains to us that, in fact, Moshe Davins for what ends up being 40 days all the way until Rosh Chodesh Elul. Right? 19th of Tammuz plus the entire month of Av is 40 days. Moshe Davins for forgiveness for them for those 40 days. Then comes Rosh Chodesh Elul. Rosh Chodesh Elul, Hashem says to Moshe, listen, I want you to supply me with two blank sapphire tablets. Bring them up to the mountain and I, Hashem, will write on those tablets again like the words of the first tablets. So Moshe does that on Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is now the 81st day, so to speak, of this entire episode from Moshe going up the mountain for the first set of tablets, Moshe doing whatever he did to judge the people with the golden calf, going up and praying for forgiveness for the next 40 days. Day 81, Moshe goes up with two blank tablets, blank slates, and he stays there for 40 days until he gets newly carved, newly etched tablets that Hashem writes into the tablets, the words of the Ten Commandments. And when does Moshe Rabbeinu come down? On Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is 40 days later. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the day that Hashem forgives the Jewish people. Now, in addition to that information of timeline, you have to know as follows. There's a whole subset of sentences in our Parsha, which can be basically found in chapter 33, sentences 6 through 11, that describe the fact that the Jewish people had been given jewelry, some sort of special adornment, after the golden calf. The rabbis say that they were two crowns, one representing Na'asad, the other one Nishma. They were given this edification, these, these, these pieces of jewelry, and they lost them after the golden calf. They, they were removed, they were stripped of them. And then the Torah describes in those sentences, chapter 33, sentences 7 through 12, that Moshe, after the golden calf, would <coughs> took his tent, removed it from the general encampment of the Jewish people, parked it outside where the rest of the Jews were camping, 
And whoever wanted to seek Hashem would leave the Jewish encampment, travel to the tent of Moshe. And guess what? Whenever Moshe would go home into his tent, there would be a pillar of cloud representing the divine presence of Hashem standing at the entranceway of Moshe's tent. Okay, so that means that God's presence was in the tent of Moshe. And when the people saw that, they would prostrate. And the Torah describes that Hashem would speak to Moshe in this tent. And in fact, that tent was temporarily called the Ohel Moe. Now, the question is, when did that happen? He was on the mountain for 120 days. When did that happen? That Moshe took his tent after the sin of the golden calf, right? And parked it away from the rest of the Jewish people. And now Hashem is regularly having conversations with Moshe Rabin. When did that happen? Says Rashi, that happened from Yom Kippur until the day that the tabernacle was erected. From Yom Kippur until the day that the tabernacle was erected, Hashem would be in Moshe's tent. Moshe's tent was outside the camp. Whoever wanted to see Hashem would go to Moshe's tent. They would prostrate when they would see the divine presence there. So far, so good. It's a lot of information, right? But that's just called, uh, you know, laying the table. That is the setup to understand the questions that we're about to ask. So last piece of information related to all this is as follows. Hashem, we know, forgave the Jewish people on Yom Kippur. And Rashi says that really the middle 40 days were not very happy days. The first 40 days, those were happy days. They were days of Ratzon. Goodwill, because Moshe went up the mountain. The Jewish people had not constructed a golden calf. They had just come off the Mount Sinai experience. That was a nice 40 days. The last 40 days, says Rashi, are compared to the first 40 days because now Hashem has already decided, so to speak, to forgive the Jewish people. And now he's ready to give the second tablets. But the middle 40 days, God is not a happy camper. Okay, that's what Rashi tells us. But on Yom Kippur, says Rashi, Hashem was appeased with the Jewish people, besimcha, with happiness, ubelev shalem, and with a complete heart. So that means when Yom Kippur came, Hashem is happy. Hashem is happy. And he forgave the Jewish people. That's why we call it Day of Atonement, right? That was actually the first Yom Kippur of all time. The problem is that let's keep in mind that from Yom Kippur until the day that the Mishkan was erected, Hashem was in Moshe's tent. Anybody who wanted to seek the word of Hashem had to go to Moshe's tent. And Moshe's tent, tent was outside the camp. But the kicker is that Rashi tells us that Moshe was in his tent and he was speaking to Hashem. And, you know, Hashem would turn to Moshe and say, listen, Moshe, you're angry. I'm angry. Who's going to be Makar of the people? Who's going to bring the people close? So you know what, Moshe, go back to the general encampment, speak to the people, teach the people, and then come back. And that was the process after Yom Kippur until the day that the Mishkan was erected. So the obvious question is, how can Rashi tell us that on Yom Kippur Hashem was happy and that with a full heart he forgave the Jewish people, but then... After Yom Kippur, Moshe is down from the mountain. He has the second set of tablets. And there is not yet a constructed Mishkan that Hashem is not happy. And Hashem is saying, listen, Moshe, I'll appear in your tent. 
But you got to go, you know, sometime from your camp, your tent back to the general camp, because otherwise, who's going to bring the people close? Is God happy or is he not happy? Now, I don't want to offend anyone, but, you know, sometimes we have that question about our spouses. Can't tell. Are, they, are you happy or you're not happy? You're upset at me or you're not upset at me? But what's the deal? We think that the message would be pretty close, uh, you know, to the truth. If you're talking about Hashem, if Rashi says that he forgave the people, so why is Moshe's tent outside the camp? Why isn't Moshe's tent inside the camp? Why does everybody have to travel outside the camp if they seek Hashem? And maybe more to the point is, why is Hashem only in Moshe's tent? So that's question number one. I know it took a lot of background to get there, but I think the information is interesting and we need to know it if we want to understand uh, the Parsha regardless. Now, question number two, equally stunning and strong, is as follows. I mentioned that the Jewish people were dancing with the golden calf or prostrating, whatever they were doing, having a party. Moshe was on top of the mountain on the 17th of Tammuz. And before Hashem tells Moshe to go down, he tells Moshe, listen, I'm, I'm planning to kill these people. And Moshe says, no, 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 don't kill them. And he right? Hashem, you swore to Avram Yaakov. These are your people. You swore in you by your very essence. If God makes a swear by him, then it can't be otherwise. And so the Torah says Hashem regretted and Hashem reconsidered, I should say, and decided not to kill the people. Okay, so I understand that after that happens on top of the mountain, Moshe goes down, he smashes the tablets, he grinds the golden calf, people die, people get killed. I get that. That's all part of the repercussions, even though Hashem had decided not to destroy the people. But what I don't get is that on day 18, after all this judgment is done, right, and all those people die, then the next day on day 19, Moshe turns to the people and says, listen, guys, I got to go get atonement for you. He proceeds to pray for them for 40 days. Basically, the first thing he says to God is, Hashem, listen, you got to forgive these people. If not, erase me from the book that you wrote. Are you serious? Hashem already decided not to destroy them. What is Moshe Rabbeinu doing? He's committing like eternity suicide? You know, take me out of the Torah? Why? Hashem decided not to destroy the people. You want to tell me that they need more forgiveness and he's praying for them? Okay, even that needs an explanation. What exactly is the, is the new forgiveness that is being required? You know, if he decided not to destroy them, so, okay, I understand maybe he's not so happy, but things are basically okay. Now, I'm okay with you telling me Moshe needs to pray for them. But why is he threatening Hashem and saying, if you don't forgive them, erase me from your book? That seems crazy. Everybody agree with that question? Okay. So I, I hope that I'm being clear. I'm happy to, to try to do a better job if anybody wants. And if not, then I will continue. Okay. So we'll continue. There's one um, question we've spoken about here before. I'm only mentioning it today a little bit in passing. Uh, but I want to remind everyone, because it's very, very important, is that when we see the Talmud saying something and it seems absolutely outlandish or even imbecilic, it requires great analysis. And so the question I'm referring to comes up in Tractate Zavachin, where the rabbis ask the following questions. Where do I see a hint for Mordechai in the Torah? Where do I see a hint for Esther in the Torah? 
Where do I see a hint for Haman in the Torah? I'll just share the Haman one for coming up to Purim. <clears throat> and the Haman hint in the Torah is the very time that Hashem says, could it be that man ate from the tree that I commanded him not to eat? Did you, man, eat from the tree that I told you not to? That question of astonishment, that man in his initial, you know, uh, moments of being created, that he's so obstinate and so subversive, really, that he contravenes the one commandment that he had. Is such a thing possible? I mean, is it from that tree? That astonishment, that bewilderment of man's evil is the very place where Haman is hinted in the Torah. But we could understand that. And more than that, we can understand that the Talmud is asking, even though I have a book called Book of Esther, and Haman, I know he exists, but where else is he in the Bible? Where can I learn more about him? Or where is an earlier appearance of Haman? I could understand that question. But if I tell you that the Talmud also asks, where is there a hint to Moshe in the Torah? You would think that, you know, people have lost their marbles, right? And not only is the question seemingly insane but the answer is even more insane because if you ask me where's the answer how about every time he says god spoke to moshe saying right over and over and over again in the torah and many other places or if you want let's go to the first one you know she pulls him out of the river and she says hey i pulled him out of the river and she called him moshe that would be a good one but instead what the talmud says is look if you look at the first uh, parasha in the Torah, Parasha's Bereshit, you look in the last few sentences where the Torah is describing the depravity of mankind before they are destroyed with the flood, the Torah says, Hashem says, my spirit will not contend with me forever about the fate of man, because man is but flesh, you know what? Nebuch, he's a, he's a, he's a human flesh and blood being. Uh, let me give him another 120 years. That's what the Torah says. That word you know, Nebuch, Bishagam, who goes, he's but flesh, you know, what can, what can he do? Bishagam is numerically 345, and Moshe is 345, and Moshe lives 120 years. That's where we see Moshe in the Torah. Instead of, you know, I pulled him out of the water and called him the Moshe, or every other time that Hashem speaks to Moshe, what is the, what is the Gemara doing? It seems crazy. So I suggest that what the Gemara is doing, and I'm hoping everybody will, you know, kind of use this as an example of the proof that A, the rabbis are not crazy, and B, if you really try to understand what they're saying, then new vistas of wisdom open up that are not only meaningful, but they're very inspirational and hopefully practical, as we shall see. What the rabbis are saying is like this. They're not asking, hey, anybody see where I can find Moshe in the Torah? Because that's literally an insane person would need to ask that question. What they're asking is, where is the place in the Torah that I can best understand who Moshe is? What is his essence? What is the most profound definition of Moshe that will explain to us his greatness and what he does in his life? And to that, the rabbis say, it's where you find God saying that man is completely corrupt. I really should destroy them, but I'm going to give them 120 years anyways because even mere mortal flesh and blood man can transform and change and grow and improve. And therefore, Hashem, in that moment of giving mankind 120 years to change, 
is born the clarion call of Moshe Rabbeinu. Every single person, if they show an interest or an ability of any sort, we have to give them a chance to transform and change. And that's Moshe Rabbeinu's life in a nutshell. In our parsha, what happens? The Jewish people are dancing around the golden calf and Moshe is on top of the mountain and Hashem is saying, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moshe says, no, you promised Avram, Yitzchak, and Yisrael that you're not going to destroy them. To which Hashem says, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to destroy them. And Moshe goes down and he does all kinds of punishments for all the people that were guilty, most of whom are apparently the Erev Rav, the people who instigate it, which is the multitudinous mixture of other nations that attached themselves to the Jewish people when they went up from Egypt. But you'll notice that Moshe never secured the survival of the Erev Rav. Because when he's on top of the mountain, what does he say? Remember what you promised the forefathers about their children. Guess what? The Erev Rav are not the children of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yisrael. The Erev Rav don't descend from Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yisrael. So just because Hashem has promised not to destroy the Jewish people that descend from the forefathers, he's not said anything about what he's going to do with the other people who instigated the rebellion. So the next day, Moshe says to the people, he says, guys, listen, I've got to go daven for you. <clears throat> and specifically, Moshe Rabbeinu was davening for the Ariv Rav. And that's borne out by the fact that he keeps referring to the people not as the Israel, but Ha'am, the nation which generally the rabbis tell us refers to the Ariv Rav or the entire Jewish people in the context of the Ariv Rav. Either way, I'm suggesting that when Moshe Rabbeinu puts his eternity on the line and he says, if you don't forgive the people, erase me from the book that you wrote, he's saying, look, these people, they came up from Egypt to attach to the Jewish people. They don't have the lineage of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Israel. That's true. But apparently they're really interested. They came up with us. And even though they just wreaked havoc and caused devastation that is going to last until the future until the Mashiach comes called the sin of the golden calf and they literally instigated that of course the rest of the Jewish people have their own liability see the Wednesday class or last night's uh, Thursday night share for more on that bottom line is I refuse to be in your book unless you Hashem ratify that even they can get forgiveness because otherwise the Torah is not for all people it's not really for all flesh and blood people and I don't want to be a part of your book if it's not for all these people too. And Hashem says, okay. And the Erev Rav are not destroyed. So now we have that Hashem decided not to destroy the Jewish people. Hashem even decides not to destroy the multitudinous mixture, all because of the praying of Moshe Rabbeinu. And then Moshe is on the mountain for those 40 days. And the sum total of that is that it takes a lot for Moshe to secure a better attitude from Hashem on the part of the Jewish people. So now let me ask a question. Before the end of that 40 days, so in other words, before 80 days, is Hashem still planning to live with the Jewish people? Or he's just planning to not destroy them? And uh, you know what? He'll send an angel to lead them, as the Torah says. And maybe there won't be any resting place for Hashem among the Jewish people. Is Hashem actually still deciding to marry these people? As the rabbis tell us, the 10 
commandments on the tablets are a parallel to the marriage document that a husband writes for his wife, where he says, I'm responsible for this money. And in case there's death or in case of divorce, this is my responsibilities to you. The rabbis say that the tablets of stone, the sapphire tablets represent the marriage contract. Would there be a second set of tablets? And the answer is no, until the third 40 days where Hashem says, okay, I'm willing to redo the whole marriage contract, come up with a fresh set of tablets. I'll write on them the words of the first command, first set of Ten Commandments. And Moshe goes up and he's there until Yom Kippur. And so now what we have is that Hashem is deciding to remarry the Jewish people and to become newly committed to them. But I think the best way to understand that new commitment is what he's saying is, when I give you the tablets, that means I'm going to live by you. What's the proof to that? Where are the tablets? Where do we keep the tablets? Both the broken ones and the whole ones. In the ark, where God rests his presence, which is why it's called a mishkan. So Hashem says, if I'm giving you the tablets, it's not just that I'm your king and you have laws. I'm living with you like a husband lives with a wife. That's what the tablets represent, a marriage contract where the husband says, I am attached to you. I declare to the whole world, you are my wife. And it's clear as day that I live with you. We live together in the Mishkan. That's the idea of the tablets. And that's what Moshe is doing in Yom Kippur. And you know what? Hashem is very happy to announce to everyone that he's planning to live with the Jewish people. And that's the joy and the full heart of Yom Kippur, and hopefully every Yom Kippur we gain that kind of a, of a commitment from Hashem. There's only one little problem which we have with our Yom Kippur today, and which Hashem had with Yom Kippur back then. Sure, he was committed to live with the Jewish people, but there was no Mishkan yet. Anybody ever remember those long days of engagement where you both decided to live together and somebody's dragging their feet and you don't actually get to live together? That's not very fun. That's frustrating. So even though Hashem agreed to live with the people and these are his wife and he's happy about it, he's actually pretty, pardon the expression, darn frustrated that he has no place to live. You know why? Because the people are not ready to live with him. They need not only Yom Kippur, they need to build the Mishkan. They need to completely undo all of their doubts, all of their disloyalty, all of their questions about, oh, maybe the golden calf is a real thing. Maybe we should use a golden calf to be an intermediary. They need to actually go through the process of building a tabernacle so that Hashem is comfortable living with them. So in the meantime, where does Hashem live? In the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's where he lives. But Hashem's not really happy about that. You know what? Guess what? Moshe Rabbeinu's not happy about that either. Because Moshe Rabbeinu's whole mission is to make Hashem available for all people. Moshe Rabbeinu is not looking for Hashem to live in his tent. Moshe Rabbeinu is looking for the Jewish people to have this bonded relationship with Hashem. Moshe is considered the matchmaker of Hashem and the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu is not happy either. To which Hashem says, listen, you're not happy I'm not living with them. I'm not happy I'm not living with them. In the meantime, I'm not living with them. Somebody's got to go you know, encourage them that uh, this is all going to work out. Yeah, we're all going to move in together, but they have to keep doing their part. They have to donate. They have to build the Mishkan. They have to really work on themselves. Yeah, go be Makar's then. So there are stages to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a process. 
you know, we've all had this experience in life where maybe we've had a falling out with someone. And the question is, can we go from wanting to destroy them to being okay with them, to actually wanting to have a conversation with them, to actually enjoying time with them, to actually want to spend time with them, to actually want to live with them? That's a lot of stages of forgiveness. And of course, the ultimate is we should want to spend time and to live with each other. You know, the truth of really close relationships is that we don't live with everybody, even with people that we'd love to spend more time with, whether they be our close friends or our relatives. But the feeling should be that I just wish I could spend more time with you. That's the feeling. You know, practically speaking, we can't. And we have a nuclear family for a reason. And, you know, children grow up and build their own uh, homes for a reason. But the feeling should be that I want to be with you. <laughs> if I could spend more time with you and it didn't interfere with uh, everything else I need to do, that's what I would love to do and I would do. That is the day of the Mishkan being erected. Right? Just the fact that Hashem wants to, but is not actually ready, and the people are not actually ready for that, is frustrating. And then ultimately, in the day when the Mishkan is erected, that's the rabbis tell us basically the happiest day of all creation. That was the most magnificent day of all creation was the day of the Mishkan being erected. There were 10 crowns that that day took, one of them, of course, being Hashem resting his presence among the Jewish people. But what pertains to us to look at now, aside from understanding the evolution of a relationship and intimacy and overcoming major breakdowns and rebuilding, aside from all of that, Look at the greatness and the subservience of both Moshe and Hashem. Moshe lives so that other people have a relationship with Hashem. And Moshe calls Hashem on the task of, if you're not going to make yourself available to the Erefra, I don't want to be part of this. Look at the unbelievable greatness, and can we say humility, of Moshe. As we know, he is the most humble person on the face of the earth. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was not looking for his own spiritual Zen, you know, own moment. Moshe Rabbeinu is looking to practically make a bonded relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people, and that it should be available even to people that are not as clear candidates like the A Rivra, but are nonetheless worth the effort. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu says, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu does, and that's in fact what he accomplishes. That kind of greatness obviously is very hard to find. But now let's look at Hashem. Hashem could have rejected us time and again. Not only does Hashem not reject us, he's treating it like such a real deal that he's so attached to us that he's actually frustrated by not being able to have a mishkan. That's actually something that gets him upset. Instead of like, okay, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you like this. A friend of mine recently told me that he loves it when his grandchildren come visit him for Pesach and he has several children with their families. He absolutely loves it. It's, it's, it's a terrific thing. But after Pesach, he turns to them and says, listen, guys, this was phenomenal. It was unbelievable. But I'm giving $500 to the family that will leave first. <laughs> right? You know, there, like, there gets to be a limit. But like Hashem is like, you know, a fortiori, a fortiori, like he really wants to put up with our garbage. You know, we're very annoying people. Let's be honest. And Hashem is like hankering to have a relationship with us. He's even upset when we can't make it to have the Mishkan constructed yet. 
So the therefore is that we are so privileged to be led by someone like Moshe Rabbeinu, to have a king and a father like Hashem, who is also a groom for us, that he's literally, so to speak, dying to have a relationship with us, that he does everything he can to help us overcome our own foibles and our own um, missteps, because really he does, it's almost crazy to say, but he really does want to live with us. He really does. And we are his chosen people, we are his betrothed, and the proof is that he gave us the tablets of sapphire. Because last point, wherever you find the dwelling place of God, you will find sapphire. Because sapphire represents the kingdom of heaven, it represents God's presence as being available, which is why the divine throne is made out of sapphire, the tablets are made out of sapphire, the vision at Mount Sinai that was underneath the feet of God, so to speak, was a sapphire brickwork, and the staff of Moshe was also made out of sapphire. And therefore, in the tent of Moshe, where God was resting temporarily until the Mishkan would be ready, there was a quarry of sapphire from which Moshe carved the second set of tablets. Because that's God's kind of sign that this is where God is living. And that's why the Ark, containing the sapphire of the tablets of both sets, is God's resting place. So let's do questions or comments. Dr. Patterson, you want to take it away? Well, yes, thank you. Man, this one was uh, runs wide and deep, as always. Um, I, I just have some thoughts. I think they might be connected. Uh, the, the points that you make about forgiveness are, are really crucial. Um. I mean, and the, the stages of forget, forgiveness are the stages along a path, uh, you know, a, a restoration of a relationship. And it's, it's a kind of healing. I mean, here's Moshe Rabbeinu and, and God together receiving the Torah, God giving the Torah out of a profound, divine, infinite act of love. And next thing you know, they're dancing around the cat. So God has to be suffering horribly, hurting. Uh, so forgiveness is a way of not just restoring the relationship, but, but, but healing. And it's a healing through which we ourselves are healed. Uh, and it's a process between God and Moses, as I see of, of each becoming who he is. Moshe Rabbeinu is, 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 is insisting that God be God, that God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as, he, as God himself identifies himself to Moses. Um, and Moses is being Moshe, Moses. Moshe is being Moshe. 
through this insistence, through this pressing God. And it's only through his nearness to God that he can press God. So I see this, this tells us for, forgiveness creates a possibility of tshuva. Tshuva is one of the seven things that precede creation because it's essential to creation. Without tshuva, there can be no creation. Without creation, there can be no tablets. You know, the seven, the, the ten utterances of creation are, are tied to the ten utterances of revelation. Uh, so this is a very emotional encounter to me. It's, it runs deep with pathos and, and you know, and love. Love. Passive. Um, and God wants Moses to press him, I think. He wants Moses to press him, just like he wanted Abraham to argue with him. Except Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, you know, whereas Abraham argued for the sake of the right, righteous, Moshe Rabbeinu was arguing for all righteous and not so righteous. That's the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, the holiness of Moshe Rabbeinu, and I need, and I think, you know, if you, if this makes sense, Moshe Rabbeinu reminds God, opens God's eyes, and I've always been struck that it looks like sometimes God needs to be reminded of something. <laughs> really, but that's where that's where we become human by reminding God, just as God reminds us. That's what makes it a covenant. A marriage. The tablets are, are a ketubah, right? Anyway, those are my thoughts. No, thank you. I appreciate it. So I, I, I very much uh, like your idea of Moshe's insistence on Hashem being Hashem. I think you're saying that in order for Hashem to be Hashem, he really does need to give these people a chance. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. In addition to the actual promise. Yeah, the yeah. Well, well, come, 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 come. Thank you. Uh, I, um, I just have a, uh, a, yes. a a couple of comments. Uh, amazing yeah, here, and thank you, one uh, Professor, Professor Patterson. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, please. Sorry. Okay. Well, so many things come to mind. First of all, there's a question in the context the context of looking at forgiveness and and tshuva. Is 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 forgiveness just restoring something? To the way things were, is it a way of of kind of covering up uh, a hurt, or is it perhaps even an opportunity to go beyond where things were? And Hashem always gives us a challenge, and if 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 we succeed, it's great, and if we fail, He somehow finds a way to direct us to a way that that failure somehow we can become aware to turn it around. Uh, what what strikes me about uh, Moshe's plea and Hashem wanting that plea is that Moshe says shows that he understands that that he's not saying look at us we're failed there's stuff wrong with us you know we're going to do better etc he's he's evoking the qualities of Hashem which shows that he understands that the way to turn the people around is in certain cases, is not to chastise them and make them feel bad about themselves and make them feel guilty and miserable, 
but to have them focus on the fact that there's a path to forgiveness and that Hashem is patient and he puts up with us. And sometimes it's better to turn around when you have hope than you feel terribly about yourself. So I think that, 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 that he reinforced the message that he understood how to teach the people and what approach to take when they must have been really feeling incredibly degraded through their failure. That's a very good point, because we don't find that he chastises them at this point. But, but he tells Hashem that he knows his greatness and, and that he is there to teach the people about his greatness and his mercy, and that that's how, how they're going to get better, not by, by being made to feel horrible about themselves. Excellent point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maria Kodesh. Yeah. Hi. Needle Goodman, how are you? It's very interesting. The Ria Kudish writes that Moshe was a Gilgal from Noah. And he, his job was because when he was Noah, he would, did not misspell up for the door. And this was his place and where he's doing chuba. And he's inspired all the way, even to the people from the Erevra. So the Ria Kudish writes. That's why I, I was in the, uh, So this is the depth of what's really happening here. Really Moshe is going out all the way to correct what Noah didn't do because he was a guildful. That's the real Kodesh rights. So, so um, could you send that to me, the, where he writes that he was davening also for the Erevra? The real Kodesh? The real Kodesh said he, he was sucking the door. Whatever happened to the door, that means whatever happened, but Noah didn't, didn't say anything. No, yeah, but you're saying, does he say Erevra Beferish? You know? I don't remember. I, I'll okay, be honest. Speak, I remember yeah, saying, no, if you see it, if you see it, I'd like to see it. I, I'll, I'll, I'll okay, find it. That's why the depth of, of this is a right. correction to Moshe, the whole thing. That's what it sounds like. Uh, a correction of Moshe for Noah. Yeah. Save the generation. And that's why it's right before the flood, right? And Moshe is in the... Right. Okay, anybody else? Are we good? Good for today? I have my I had my hand raised, but oh, I didn't like see every, it. Sorry, like I every other presenters, you raised my hand. But like every other time, the topic has moved in a different direction. I had heard in a, in a share earlier this week. I didn't keep track of the sources. Uh, the, the difference, uh, the, the special quality of Moshe Rabbeinu as a leader, that when he comes down from the mountain, and Yeshua says that he's it's like a cry of a, a battle of rebellion. It sounds like a battle down here. And Moshe Rabbeinu comes, I might have heard it from you from what I know, but uh, Moshe Rabbeinu comes down and says, no, it's called a nos, it's an affliction. They've lost their leader, they're wandering. They're, uh, they need something and they're desperate and that's why they're behaving so um, badly. And he, rec and he recognized that as the challenge he had, that no, that is, this isn't your new leader, here I am back and you got to get rid of this new leader and all new leaders. So you're saying kol anos means that that they're lost because they don't have a leader. But they're they're desperate. They're desperate. They're doing this just because they want. I mean, sure, there's some of them just want the ones who just wanted to be bad took it over. They just didn't just want to be bad and have lots of guns. They were desperate. They needed something. There was a void. Very interesting. I'm just looking at the sentence again. Um. Okay, so you're saying desperate. Okay, yeah, I'm just looking at the unquos. I think there's probably other definitions, but that's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Anybody else? We're good? I, 
I wonder if, if this, this was a critical part of it, having a leader willing to sacrifice everything for the people instilled in them the confidence of achieving true tshuva. Hmm. Meaning that the fact that Moshe was able to put himself on the line gave them the understanding of their own ability. Right. I've always wondered, like, why is this whole process needed? It's almost like it almost seemed to me like a charade. I'm going to destroy them unless you say something. Right. And perhaps it was absolutely necessary for him to say something because this is the way they could get there. It's, Having it's, a leader that's willing them. to sacrifice everything for the people shows that at least he that that he has confidence in the people's ability to achieve reconciliation. That they're worthy. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. Excellent point. I appreciate it. Really nice. Really, really nice point. Beautiful. Thank you, everyone. Thank Great you. to see you all. Have a beautiful Shabbos. Shabbos. Good Shabbos. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.